Good morning and happy Thanksgiving. Hope you're having a a really enjoyable Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, People do seem to be more genuinely grateful and sincerely thankful this year. I guess it's because in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, we're better able to appreciate what's really important in life and what is sort of superficial, at least for a little while, now that Black Friday has passed, I guess, too. Uh, But we're all thankful for the way people really rallied together uh, to face this crisis. We had a great volunteer work day yesterday, and it was great. And as a church, we'll continue to reach out to our neighbors who are being affected and continue to be affected by the rebuilding for many months to come. But I wish there was a way to rally that same kind of enthusiasm and unity to confront an even greater crisis that has hit our nation, a crisis that actually causes more heartache and hopelessness, more poverty and more pain than really any natural disaster. And that's the breakdown, the breakdown in relationships in marriage and the meltdown of families. Of all the social problems that affect our nation, the need to forge strong marriages is absolutely at the top of the list. Pick your issue, abortion, drug abuse, kids dropping out of school, gangs, economic hardship, welfare, you name it. They all tie into the strength of marriage in our culture. Marriage is the basic building block of human society. So whether you're single or married or divorced, we all have a stake in this issue because when the place of marriage deteriorates, it sends emotional and social and economic shockwaves throughout the whole society. And everyone feels it one way or another. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about what makes a marriage strong and healthy, like our passage this morning from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. One of the things that I like about preaching through a book of the Bible is that you get to see the flow of thought and how each passage builds on what came before and what will come after. That's called the context. When people just use isolated verses that they kind of pluck out of the Bible, They can easily kind of manipulate the Bible to get it to say whatever it is they want it to say. The phrase that's used to describe that is that the text without the context can become a pretext. In other words, people look for Bible verses that support their preconceived ideas, lift that verse out of their context, and in that way the people can twist the Bible basically to get it to say anything they want it to say. Context really counts. And understanding the historical context is, is also important so that you can distinguish you know, what are the universal principles that God has for all people everywhere and what are descriptions of, of ancient practices that may or may not apply to us today. Otherwise, misunderstandings abound. So this morning's passage is a good example of that. And as I read about relationships in marriage, let me read it and then we'll talk a little bit about the context. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, 
like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are daughters, you are her daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Peter starts out this passage saying, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves. I can feel teeth clenching and temperatures rising. So let's look at the context for just a second. He says, in the same way. Well, what way is he talking about? Well, you have to look back to chapter 2 where he writes about this new community that we are to have in Christ and the way this church, this, this royal priesthood, this group of believers is supposed to be different from the culture in which they live. Peter says that the overarching principle for our behavior is that we are to follow Jesus as our model of self-sacrifice. In verse 16 in chapter 2, he says, Live as God's slaves. For all of us, men and women, we are to give our lives to Christ. And that means myself, my, my whole person, my whole being, body, soul, spirit, mind, all comes under the control of Christ. It means that I am an individual governed by Jesus Christ. My entire life, every aspect of it, whether spiritual, moral, physical, or intellectual, everything has become subject to the sovereignty of God's Spirit. I submit to Him. Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 21, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in His steps. And so first and foremost, in all our relationships, we give ourselves to God. We surrender ourselves, our rights, our egos, our needs, our actions to Him. And we follow the example of sacrificial love that Jesus gave to us. The kind of love He demonstrated when He died on the cross for us. And as we surrender our egos to God, we bring that same attitude to all our relationships in the world, in the church, and today funnel down specifically into the relationships of marriage. The main point would be that men and women are to model the self-sacrificing love of Christ in all their relationships, but most especially in marriage. In today's passage, Peter gives six times more space to the advice that he gives to women than to men, and there's a reason for that. Remember this letter was written about 65 A.D. when Christians had fled Italy and Greece to get away from the, the barbaric persecutions of the Roman Emperor Nero. They were scattered throughout the cities of, of ancient Turkey, and yet the church continued to grow. More and more people had put their faith in Christ and were joining the church and this created a lot of domestic problems because one person might become a Christian while another person doesn't. And this was much harder on women than it was on the men. In a totally male-dominated culture where women were considered to be the property of their fathers or their husbands, the women had no rights and no power whatsoever. You could compare it to the way women are treated in, in strict Islamic villages under the control of the Taliban and in Afghanistan. You know, women covered from head to toe. 
everything controlled by the men. That's the kind of male-female culture we're talking about here in 1 Peter. So a man who decides to, to worship Jesus, well, he just brought the whole family, no questions asked whether they wanted to or not. The father made all the decisions. But a wife, a wife going to worship without her husband, that was scandalous. That was unprecedented. Women weren't even supposed to appear in public without the permissions of their husband or their father. So how do you live for Christ in that kind of a repressive environment? Peter had just given instructions to believers who were slaves or servants, uh, household servants, and how they should act. They were in a tough spot too. Slavery was, was deeply embedded into this culture as, as normal. And there was no possibility of emancipation. And yet the apostles had proclaimed this, this revolutionary idea that in Christ, slaves and slave owners were absolutely equal before God. There was no distinction, and, and this was absolutely revolutionary. That's in Galatians 3, verse 28. But in the pagan world, nobody really cared about that. And so Christian slaves were in a tough spot. Peter's counsel was for them to be the very best slaves they could possibly be, using Christ as their model, even when they were treated unjustly. The apostles taught the same about men and women, absolutely equal before God. Women were not second-class citizens of heaven. They didn't get to heaven on the coattails of their husbands or their fathers, as some religions continue to teach today. Through a godly marriage, people have the opportunity to mirror the highest kind of love, the kind of love experienced in the Trinity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And mutual submission is at the core of the very nature of God, a voluntary selflessness that honors others as more important than yourself. The word submit often sticks in the throat of modern people and is really misunderstood. It's not some kind of, of spineless groveling. That's not what submit means, but the opportunity to imitate the very nature of Jesus Christ. Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, six talking about Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This Jesus, who was and is equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in every way, in all glory, in all power, in all majesty, he made himself nothing, became a slave, he submitted. In Ephesians 5.21, the Apostle Paul begins his discussion of marriage in almost the exact same way Peter does, by talking about Christ the servant as our example. And then he says to both men and women, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on to say, uh, wives, you submit this way, and then later in the chapter, husbands, you submit this way. Both men and women are called, first of all, to submit to Christ, 
and then to each other. In marriage, there is to be this reciprocal submission based on our surrender to Christ and the death of pride. And that puts us really at odds with how most relationships are viewed today. I can't get at all of this this morning. It's too short. I don't have enough time. So I really want to highly recommend that you pick up a copy of Tim Keller's book called The Meaning of Marriage. This is really the very best book that I have read in a long time about the theology, the meaning, and the issues surrounding marriage in our culture today. And I really encourage you to read what Keller has to say. Very thoughtful and well worth your time. The Christian view of marriage and our cultural view of marriage are really moving in two opposite directions. The easiest way for me to describe this is to talk about the difference between a we marriage and a me marriage. A we marriage is one where Christ is truly the third party to the relationship between a man and a woman. A me marriage is something entirely different. Let me talk about the me marriage first. One of the things that Tim Keller writes about is that in the past, there was far less talk about compatibility and finding sort of your ideal soulmate when people talked about marriage. Today, people are looking for someone who will fulfill all their desires and all their needs, sort of what I call a a Jerry Maguire syndrome. Do you remember that famous scene from the Tom Cruise movie where he kind of dramatically confesses his love for his girlfriend by bursting into her living room and saying, you complete me. And everybody's heart went pitter-patter, I guess. That's a definition of his love. It's all about what she can do for him. You complete me. That's a me marriage. Finding that perfect person who's going to fulfill all my needs And that definition of love creates this unrealistic set of expectations that frustrates both the one who is searching for love and the one who is being searched for. When the underlying expectation of the relationship is, what can you do for me? How should you make me feel? That's a recipe for great disappointment, turmoil, and even divorce. No one is that perfect. No person can possibly make you feel the way you want to feel. It's not possible in the long run. Sure, at the beginning, there can be a rush of euphoria. There can be these intense feelings. And then people are surprised when those feelings can't be sustained after the honeymoon, after the kids arrive, after life gets more complicated. The idea of finding the perfect person to meet your needs can be paralyzing because people are so afraid of making the wrong choice that they don't want to make any choice. So people postpone relationship commitment. They bypass, you know, great potential, potentially potential mates because they are hoping to find that perfect person. Duke University ethics professor Stanley Hauerwas writes that no one ever marries the right person. No two people are ever that compatible. The me marriage self-fulfillment approach begins with this false assumption that there's this perfect match out there somewhere. And if you just look hard enough, eventually you'll find your one true soulmate. So if not in your first marriage, then why not your second? It's a consumer approach to relationships that says, I'll stay with you as long as you make me happy but you'll never mesh perfectly with any other person like that. There's no one on this planet 
who is that low maintenance enough. And you're not perfect, and neither is anyone, anyone else. So the expectation that another person is going to meet all your needs is really foolish. The me marriage approach is why so many couples decide to live together before marriage so that they can have sort of this trial run to see if they are truly compatible with each other for the long haul. But that turns out to be a false expectation too. Every study that has ever been done on cohabitating couples shows that once they marry, they are twice as likely to get divorced. Instead of building a stronger bond, it actually weakens the bond once they decide to get married. Because if the necessary commitment to each other isn't there, living together absolutely does not produce it. And living together actually makes getting divorced an easier option than sticking it out through the tough spots. Many guys particularly, if they live with their girlfriend before getting married, they actually become less and less inclined or even able to stay married because they like having all the benefits of being married without having to take on all of the responsibilities. I'm sorry, guys, that's the way you are. Or they can't take that step of commitment and will walk away and just keep on looking for a better partner. A me marriage is based on the premise of self-fulfillment. A we marriage is very different. It starts with an understanding that marriage is God's idea. God invented marriage and has a great purpose for it. The creation story in Genesis actually ends with a wedding. Did you know that? After bringing Adam and Eve together in Genesis 2, verse 24, the, the creation account ends with these words, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This beautiful picture of a union of a husband and wife, these words are repeated throughout the Bible as the definition of marriage. Jesus uses these words as his definition of marriage. One man and one woman committed to a monogamous relationship with each other for life. That is the only biblical definition of marriage, and don't ever be fooled by people who try to tell you otherwise. The fact that sometimes marriages fail, the fact that many people experience the pain and the trauma of divorce, the fact that people allow their passions and their impulses to lead them into all kinds of other relationships, none of that changes God's definition of marriage. The traditional marriage ceremony begins with the words, the bond and covenant of marriage was established by God and creation. And our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So the we marriage is built on this premise that God is the third party to the relationship. And everything done in the relationship is done first and foremost to please him and to model the kind of unselfish love that God has for us. A traditional marriage was understood as kind of just a legal agreement dealing with property and wealth and political power. Today, marriage is often defined as, you know, I'll stay married as long as you meet my needs, but neither of those is God's intention for a marriage relationship. And this is the best insight that Tim Keller brings in his book. 
to this discussion of marriage. A Christian marriage is actually the reenactment of the gospel. God's model for marriage is for us to be Jesus Christ for our spouses, to follow his example, to sacrificially love and serve and care for the person that we are married to. Marriage is the opportunity to do in your spouse's life what God has done and is doing and will continue to do in your life. And then to let the light of your marriage shine as a witness to the world. Jesus Christ is fully God and yet surrendered his power and came to earth and gave his life for the salvation of people who put their trust in him. That is the gospel. Jesus gives his life as a sacrifice for our sins, and because of that sacrifice, we can be with him in heaven forever. The gospel says that we are are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe, and yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. God's saving love in Christ comes to us through his sacrificial love. This is the only kind of relationship that can really transform us. So when you get married, when you become God's slave, when you submit yourself to God and are joined to another in marriage, you're saying to your spouse, I will give my life to serve you. And I will give my life to be a means through which God can be working in your life. This is radically different from the way the world understands marriage. But it is the only way, the key to honoring God and to experience a fulfilling marriage. So, should women submit to their husbands? Absolutely. And husbands should submit to their wives. Because both should be submitting to the greater love of Jesus Christ. Should husbands treat their wives with respect? Definitely. And wives should also do everything that they can to uplift the value of their husbands. That's what respect is. It's to to feel valued. Uh, With respect, your value goes up. With disrespect, your, your value goes down. So husbands and wives should do that with each other because that's what Christ has done for each one of us. And so what could be more fulfilling than being in a relationship where neither person is primarily seeking their own benefit, but both are seeking the ultimate benefit of the other person. Marriage is hard, no doubt about it. Marriage takes work. In marriage, two thoroughly sinful individuals come together and try to remain together through thick and thin. And if you don't think that's going to take a lot of grace and forgiveness and patience, then you really don't understand the power of sin at work in your own life. And that's why it's a gospel reenactment. When a marriage breaks apart, it is always a tragedy of enormous proportions. It feels like like you're losing an arm or somebody has amputated your leg. It's much more than just the dissolving of a business contract. And that's why we need Christ to be the third party of every marriage to our relationships The way Christians marry should really be different than the secular world. Christian marriage isn't something decided on by a state legislature. Cultures will change their views and definitions of marriage and relationships. They've done it over and over again. 
God's definition of marriage and the Christian understanding of marriage stays the same and is essential to our faith. It means so much to God that it is the one repeated image that God uses to describe his relationship with us, the church. We are the bride of Christ. We are in a marriage relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how important this gospel reenactment is to him. Christian marriage is a microcosm of the gospel of grace, and it's only by grace that we can live it out. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have given to us not just an example of self-sacrificing love, but through the presence of your Holy Spirit, you are at work transforming our hearts in our relationships so that we can live that same way. It's not easy because our pride is so great. It's not easy because our sin is so deep. And selfishness really is at the core of our personalities. And so, Lord, for all those who are married, I would pray, Lord, that they would really seek to have a we marriage where they recognize your presence as the third party to their relationship. And for all those who have been through a divorce, Lord, I pray that you would bring healing to their hearts and you would comfort them, even whether those feelings are very tender or it was a long time ago, Lord, we know how traumatic it is for them. And for those, Lord, who are single, whether they're searching and hoping and wanting to find a spouse or whether they are comfortable and feel called to their singleness, Lord, I pray that they might also sense your presence and your peace and your power in their lives. Lord, help us with our relationships to honor you and to serve you. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.